Hello, everyone, and welcome to another Daily Objective. Today, your co-host is myself, Nikos, and Gloria. And today we have a guest. We have author Matt Ridley, and our Daily Objective is to discuss his new book, How Innovation Works. I have the Kindle version. It's not so impressive as the actual book, but you get the point. So this is a book that I've read for, I've been reading for the last few days. I encourage you to read it. It's very interesting in two levels. It's interesting on the historical level. You will learn a lot of things you did not know about some of the things that have changed our life. But also it's a very interesting book in terms of, let's say, the underlying ideas that made these developments in our life possible. So, Matt, thank you so much for being with us. I want to ask start by asking a question from my favorite line from the book. So at some point towards the end, you say, quote, innovation is the child of freedom because it is a free creative attempt to satisfy freely expressed human desires. And my question is this, the, 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 the data and the proof is all around us that freedom has made our life significantly better. Yet why is this a fight that we need to fight again and again and again? Why is it that, according to what the story goes, we have the cold logic and the numbers, but it's the, uh, the enemies of freedom that, have, that, that get the, into touch with people's hearts? So are we doing something, something wrong? Why isn't this message everywhere winning hearts and minds? Yeah, it's a really good question. And I don't think I have a final answer to it. But... Uh, I do think that uh, freedom is unbelievably important as an as a underlying basis for uh, where innovation comes from. Uh, without, without the freedom of the consumer to express his desires and the freedom of the producer to uh, experiment, to change direction, to fail and start again, all these kind of things are crucially important to innovation. You can't uh, plan or organize uh, innovation in advance. You, it, there has to be a process of trial and error, and that implies freedom. And the history of innovation certainly shows that freedom has been important in the past. The, the free city-states in Renaissance Italy, or the freedom of modern American society, even China, I would argue, is quite economically free, or has been in the last few decades, even though it's not politically free. Um, we can come back to that point if you like. So why do we have to keep re-winning this battle? Because it's not just for innovation, it's for everything else. Freedom is a good thing. Um, uh, and, and the answer, I think, is that it's it's partly the, 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 the instinct we all have to see the world as a designed place, um, to see the world as a top-down, ordered, structured, planned entity. Um, it's the creationist mistake, if you like. We look at human society the way we used to look at biological systems and say the only way you can have this complexity is because someone's in charge. And just to take you know, a simple example borrowed from Frederick Bastiat, um, 10 million people normally eat lunch in London every day, and most of them decide what to eat at the last minute. Uh, so somehow they get what they want, how is that possible? Who is in charge of coordinating that? I mean, who is London's lunch commissioner? He must be a very, very clever person. And he must have a very big staff for achieving it. 
Well, of course, he doesn't exist. It's called the market. Uh, it's it's the, an interaction between supply and demand and the experience, the experience of every restaurateur and cafe owner about what sells and what doesn't. Um, an enormous amount of knowledge expressed in this completely bottom-up way, not held inside any individual head, but held between heads um, uh, and made possible by freedom. And it just feels to me like he, people don't get that point. They, they still... They come into the world thinking that there is more intentionality, more agency, more control uh, of the situation, more planning of the situation that, than there is. Gloria. Yes, uh, Matt, thank you so much. I think that your work is highly important to understand the order in which things uh, come. Uh, there are a lot of people in Latin America that do not value the importance of freedom as a key for innovation. But at the same time, we have cultural um, appreciation sometimes for leaving things in the past. So there is this uh, a frightening view of the future where innovation is going to take people out of jobs and there's gonna be more poverty. And because we are traditionally a region, well, not anymore, but that's the myth that, that, that still lives in people's head that we are more of an agricultural region. And the only thing that we have offered to offer to the world is like natural resources there is like this aversion towards innovation but i think that with this uh post-pandemic world we are seeing that innovation doesn't have necessarily to be an enemy of nature of uh green market economics could you talk a little bit about that yeah yeah well i think that this is this is uh, a, a really important insight because people have got a general tendency to worry about innovation. Uh, they approach it in a precautionary way uh, and they worry about the things that might go wrong as a result of innovation and they don't take into account the things that might go right about innovation. We don't imagine the benefits but we do imagine the downsides and this is expressed in the precautionary principle which has come to dominate policy making in Europe particularly and is in my way my, my view a very dangerous thing because it it's asymmetrical it says let's worry about the things that might go wrong if we invent something rather than things that might go right and it doesn't take into account the drawbacks of the existing system, which we might replace with a better system. Uh, so there are all sorts of examples of um, where innovation comes along and displaces a dangerous activity with a less dangerous one. But because these are new dangers, people are more worried about the new than, than the old. Um, uh, and ecologically, you're quite right that innovation does not have to hurt the planet. In fact, quite the reverse. I point out in my book that um, even when we get to the point where we are using every resource in the world, which we never will get to, then you can always innovate because you could use less resources to achieve the same result. In fact, we do that all the time. There is 13% less aluminium in a drinks can as there was 20 or 30 years ago. Um, and there is 68% less land needed to produce a given amount of food 
Um, so actually, innovation enables us to tread more lightly on the planet, to, to use fewer resources, uh, to achieve uh, the goals that we want. The purpose is not to use resources. The purpose is to use resources to satisfy people's needs. Uh, and as we get more efficient through innovation, so we, we improve that picture. So it, it's, very, it's very difficult to get environmentalists to embrace innovation. They're very suspicious of it, and they're quite wrong to do so. On the whole, it's a good thing. So at various points in the book, you mentioned the dangers that innovation is, is facing. And you mentioned the environmental movement, the precautionary principle. You mentioned government intervention, you cronism. But here's another possible problem, and it is the low horizons that we have as like the dominant philosophy of our time. So at some point, you mentioned that there is a huge boost in communication technology, but not so much, for example, in transportation. And I wonder whether this has to do with this kind of obsession that we have with the micro level, like the gossip, who said what, who should get cancelled today, or with social media. Now, social media are brilliant. They, they allow us to do this. So, but there is something in terms of we don't want to, to, to aim high anymore. We don't want to conquer the space because this is considered, I don't know, too masculine or too intrusive to nature or whatever. <laughs> so could it also be that we are also kind of losing the philosophical fight about what it means to be a human being, that a human being should be kind of upwards looking. And this is why we see this. There's not much demand, so to speak, for, for these big projects. Like where are the maglev trains? Where is the flying cars and all that stuff? Yes, exactly. Um, well, uh, I think it's certainly true that we have not, um, uh, we are living through a period of disappointing innovation. If you leave aside what's happening in computers and communication, which has been spectacular. In, in every other way, technology has been rather disappointing. And as, as you mentioned, transport has hardly changed in my lifetime. Whereas in my grandparents' lifetime, transport changed incredibly. You know, they went from, they were born before the motor car, they were born before the airplane, they died with men on the moon and supersonic planes in the air. Um, and uh, yet they saw very little change in communication. They were born with a telephone, they died with a telephone. So I think, the reason for that switch from transport to communication and computers. And by the way, if you go back to the 1950s, they think the future will all be about transport innovation. In fact, it was more about communication innovation. Um, uh, I think the reason for that is, is partly physical limits. I mean, we did come up against diminishing returns. The faster you make an aeroplane, the more fuel you need. Whereas the communications technology discovered increasing returns. That is to say, Moore's law, um, the smaller you make a transistor, the cheaper it gets, and the more reliable. That's extraordinary. You know, so as you make it, the miniaturization revolution sweeps through computing and communication has an enormous impact. Um, but also, particularly in recent years, we have made digital electronic innovation permissionless. You don't need to get permission to develop a new software package or a new video game or something like that. Whereas you do need permission from all sorts of arms of the state to develop a new car or a new nuclear reactor or something like that. And uh, I like to use the example of medical devices because we, they're very important at the moment. Diagnostic devices for diagnosing viruses, for example. They haven't made as much progress as they should have done. They should, we should have miniaturized point-of-care devices for identifying viruses that you could just stick your finger in and, and it tells you straight away. 
Why hasn't that happened? Well, partly because if you develop one of those devices, you have to get licensing from the state. And that is a huge and expensive and very slow process. In some countries, it takes up to 70 months to get approval uh, for a new medical device. Now, frankly, you can't wait 70 months if you're an entrepreneur. So you go off and develop a video game instead where you don't have to wait at all. Uh, Peter Thiel makes this point. We wanted flying cars. We got 140 characters. I think we, re we need to think about the incentives that we give innovators in the areas that often really matter, like you know, public health or, or um, something like that. And I don't want to give spoilers for Atlas Rugged, but in part three, when people go somewhere where everyone is free, the first thing we see is, is a doctor with a brilliant scanner that can basically find anything that you have. And this was the 50s, and with oh, Gloria. Really? Yeah, I, I wanted to ask you, what is the right amount of freedom? Uh, because most people mis misunderstand freedom and they don't take it as, you know, being able to respond to the consequences of your own action, being responsible for whatever you put out. And that that is in every freedom, freedom to create, freedom to trade, uh, for you not to be... Uh, you know, uh, mis misguiding your, your customer on what you're selling, even freedom of expression uh, should also be understood as responsibility of what you are expressing or, or what you are informing. But for, for a lot of people, it's like, no, 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 too much freedom is a chaos. And what you are arguing in your new book is that without that freedom, we won't have innovation. So could there be something as the wrong amount of freedom leading to unethical innovation? And could there be something as the right amount of freedom that leads us to the right uh, kinds of innovation? Well, I often answer a question like that by saying, can you show me a country in the world that has too much freedom? And if you say, yeah, what about Somalia? It doesn't have a government. Well, it doesn't have a government, but it has a lot of it has a lot of local warlords. They're not freedom. They're not. They don't give you freedom. What about Haiti? You know, Haiti's pretty anarchic. Well, it take Haiti has huge bureaucratic obstacles uh, to people developing things. Can you think of a country where people are simply too free, and that is the cause of their problems? I can't. Um, I I can think of lots of countries which are not free enough, starting with North Korea and Belarus and, you know, going on down the list. But uh, I genuinely think that it's not a question of absolute freedom and anarchy versus uh, reasonable government. It's a, it's a question of a little more freedom would, would do us all a lot of good. Um, uh, and, you know, the, the, the important thing is to see it in that context, I think. Um, sure, there is, as you say, responsibility that comes with freedom. And if you give people freedom from the rule of law with no consequences, then they will become violent and anarchic and dangerous things will happen, as we've seen in maybe in um, uh, Seattle or Portland, Oregon recently, I think. Um, so, uh, so I'm with John Stuart Mill. My, I would like to be free to do anything and everything until I hurt someone else. Um, as soon as I hurt someone else, then my freedom must be curtailed. You know, my freedom to swing my fist goes as far as your nose. 
and no further. And another another issue that uh, is is kind of the the argument of the other side, so to speak. So now I'll play a bit devil's advocate. So one of the most interesting takeaways from your book is that the history of progress is mostly a history of evolution and not of eureka moments. Eureka moments make a nice story. And actually, you say that it's not really the history of great men, as Carlisle would put it, but it's actually many unsung heroes. Now, someone could take this and say, ah, you see, it takes a village. Therefore, it's not about so much freedom. It's about making sure that people are working together. So uh, for centuries or for decades, until maybe the 60s, the big argument of the left is was this is the point of the central planning, that is going to create a scientific society. That's what also Marx called scientific socialism. So what is the dichotomy between the it takes a village from like a socialist point of view to your point that actually there are many unsung heroes and there's a lot of cooperation involved in evolution? Well, one way of putting this is that the market is the perfect socialist ideal in some ways. You say that to shock people, I think, because what it does, you know, through the market, I am collaborating with an extraordinary number of people who are uh, selling me things, buying things from me, contributing to the manufacture of things that I need. Uh, This incredible network of Um, collaboration that we achieve through supply and demand. Um, And the same goes for innovation, that uh, you need one person coming from one direction and somebody else from another, and they collaborate. And they achieve an extraordinary collective result. Now, the difference between that and socialism, as socialism is practiced, is that the state is going to decide who collaborates with who and in what way in socialism. And that, I'm sorry, that isn't free that isn't collaboration, that is uh, uh, coercion. Um, And it feels to me that the one thing that never works uh, in these areas is coercion. Um, There are a lot of people who argue that you couldn't have innovation without strong government, without government planning, without the military discovering things and having needs and so on. Um, It's an extraordinary way of looking at the world because it would imply that in the 18th and 19th centuries, when the government spent nothing on innovation and took a tiny percentage of GDP, we would have had no innovation. We'd have had no vaccines, no railways, you know, all these things that happened before that. And if you say, well, yes, but in the last 50 years, government has created the internet and the GPS system and uh, nuclear power and all these different things. Uh, well, it, government actors have played a role, but nearly always using private sector people and also being free to collaborate. And if you look at stories like DARPA, uh, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, actually the great things were achieved, like the internet, when the people left DARPA and went off into the private sector and did their own thing. So um, uh, I think it is a mistake to see... uh, I think it's a mistake on the right, a mistake of libertarians not to concede that what we can achieve through libertarian means is collective, yes. is distributed, is collaborative, because it is. And there, there should be no dichotomy. There should be no, yes. it's only through, let's say, strong sovereign individuals that you can have strong relationships of 
community and solidarity. So again, I wonder whether the left does not understand it because it's not that complicated or they don't want to understand it. But anyway, I, wanna, yeah. I, I wanted to ask something there to both uh, uh, Matt and also you, Nikos, because I argue this in the in the OAC with the Andran Institute, the program that I'm studying, the most efficient and peaceful well-being for society and the best common good is for each individual to have freedom. Uh, and that can be mistaken as altruism, but it's not, I don't think it's altruism uh, in, in, in the first sense. It's like a consequence. It's like what happens if every individual is free to, to be their, their best potential, eventually as a consequence, you're going to have a prosperous society. And I think if we, if we are able to communicate that point, the, the socialist mentality will have a harder time convincing people. I, I don't know what, what you think about that. And also in a post-pandemic world, like what would be the best way to innovate and the lessons to draw after this year? Well, on that last point, I, I think that the, the best way to innovate has to be to unleash entrepreneurs, to, to, to take obstacles out of their way to speed up decision-making by government and things like that. As we've proved in the pandemic, that you don't need uh, to take 40 months to approve a new medical device. You can do it in a week. So that kind of thing, uh, to be deliberately permissive in our regulation, to, to set out to, to actually uh, make it possible for things to happen. But just on your previous point about um, altruism, I often think that uh, people argue that the only kind of kindness that counts is when it's costing me to be kind. You know, when I have, when I'm giving a charitable donation to you, that is, that is real kindness. If I'm giving you money because you're a shopkeeper and you're selling me something, I'm benefiting you. Um, but I'm also getting in return something. I'm getting the thing I'm buying from you. So most people say, well, that's not kindness, but it is kindness. I am creating a benefit for you by trading with you and you are creating a benefit for me by trading with with me and most of the benefits that that we receive in society uh, are done by people uh, looking uh, for a mutual gain not trying to find something that is costly to them but beneficial to other people i'm just quoting adam smith it is not from the benevolence of the butcher and the baker but from his regard to his own interest uh, that we, uh, I can't remember the rest of the sentence. Yeah, and, and also it's very important to challenge the morality itself that says that you, it's only good if you if you are hurt, because this yeah. means that it's a morality that hasn't got your life at its center. But the last point I want to say, relate to what Gloria said, I think the way to win this battle is to make clear that ours is the best and most heroic view of life. So we're not these people who are only interested in numbers, Actually, read this book, read Matt's book, and you will find heroic histories. Now, these heroes are not with swords and stuff, but these are people who go yeah. after values. They're very persistent. Some of the people, unfortunately, that you mentioned died poor and did not see their dream come true. But what a heroic endeavor, having a vision of something that you believe is true and something that you believe is, will work and going against the whole world with it. Anyway, we're way above time. <laughs> Matt, thank you so much. As I mentioned in the beginning, I, I love your work and your introduction in chapter one from The Rational Optimist, which is one of your previous books, is always on my students' reading list. 
So I encourage people when they feel down, make sure you check uh, Matt's work. Also the Rational Optimist, but also the book we discussed today, How Innovation Works, uh, available in all possible uh, uh, editions. If you get the Kindle edition, if I'm not mistaken, it's only the Kindle edition, you also get an afterwards with hopefully an optimist take on, on COVID, but also it puts into perspective how in the times that we live, innovation is even more important. Matt, thanks so much for being with us. From me and my co-host, Gloria, all the best and have a good day. Bye-bye. Thank Bye. you so much. Really enjoyed it.